I understand also full well how loving someone else, loving, reaching out and taking care of others can save us. Also, I understand the necessity for not being the savior of other people. From Life Atelier Studio, it's real. Stories of adversity, resilience, creativity, and transformation. I'm Diane McDaniel, and on today's show, I'm speaking with Chris Rice, writer and visual artist. Chris talks about growing up on the road, traveling between the Bible Belt and Southern California as the oldest of nine children and a caretaker of her younger siblings. Witness to the legacy of epigenetic trauma and suffering, Chris developed an identity as an outsider and became an observer of the imagined lives she might inhabit. Chris also talks about the healing power of love and the importance of community to protect and help the vulnerable. Why don't we just start with having you introduce yourself and tell us something that you'd like people to know about you. Well, my name is Chris Rice. I'm a writer and a visual artist and a trained librarian and a researcher. I'm the oldest of 11 children, Mm. uh, nine maternal and two paternal from my father's second marriage. I come from the Midwest, from Oklahoma and Missouri, Mm -hmm. but I spent my life, my childhood on the road, Mm. traveling between the Midwest and California, Southern California. Mm. And so I don't have a sense of a hometown or a home. Mm. An essential thing about me is that, that, quote, we carry our homes within us, which enables us to fly. Mm. Yeah. And that is an essential truth of my life. Yeah. So we're going to talk about your writing and your art. And I know that much of your creative work touches on autobiography. So to give us some context, would you mind talking a bit about your family and how you grew up? Right. As I said, I grew up traveling and moving quite a bit. When I was a senior in high school, I sort of looked back and got some perspective on that. I'd been in foster care for a little while by then. I counted the number of schools I had gone to since kindergarten and came up to the number 17. Wow. (laughs) I had moved that many times across the Southwest, but also within the same town, Mm. perhaps we would move. I had that perspective. Change was a constant for me. My mother married many times. As I said, I have, uh, I'm the oldest of her nine children, but only two were by the same father, and that was a set of twins. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any sense of continuity in terms of a family unit either. Mm -hmm. So no continuity in terms of location or where one lived in a home, no continuity in terms of family structure. Mm -hmm. I had a sense, my sense of family was uh, the growing number of siblings who were younger than me, and I took care of them Mm -hmm. for my mother in the backseat of a car or in a motel or in a rental or in the spare room of my maternal grandparents' house 
because she was a they served as a kind of like bus stop mm. yeah, kind mm-hmm. of in a way so I bonded very much with my younger siblings who mm. I took care of and in a sense that sort of saved me so I understand also full well how loving someone else loving reaching out and taking care of others can save us mm. also I understand the necessity for not being the savior of Mm. other people. So those were clarifying kind of ideas about love and community and giving that that I started learning growing up. And also because I was always the stranger. In all those 17 schools, I was the new kid Mm. over and over and over and over again. So my sense of observation, this pertains to myself as an artist and writer, was finely attuned at a very young age. Mm, yeah, I was right. able to assess a, cir- a circumstance that I came into, kind of hypervigilant in a way, right? Um, and see, become friends, converse with people, let them know as much as I could about me. And I also understood immediately at a young age the limits of people's understanding. That if your life did not fall within the parameters they understood to be the way people lived, you were somewhat invisible Mm -hmm. and sometimes, most always, an outsider. I remember being in school in Texas in fourth grade for a brief period of time, and the kids would use the phrase, you people. Mm. You know, you people think this, or you people think that. And I remember thinking, why do they refer to me as a group? Mm. Right? Did did you ever meet anybody who had an upbringing like yours? Did I? That's a really good question. Did I ever meet any? My cousins had upbringings like mine. My mother's sister, who she was so very close to, uh, lived in a very similar way. My mother and my aunt were traveling companions, and uh, my cousins lived a similar way. So maybe the only people I've truly known in my life who did live a similar way were my cousins. Hmm. Did you all go together? Were, Were you a unit, or were you always with your mother when you went from place to place? My mother would take off at the drop of a hat because there would be some difficulty she was dealing with. Usually it involved uh, breaking up with another dramatic love relationship. Mm -hmm. And so it would be, get up and pack, let's get out of here. Sometimes uh, she would enlist the aid of her sister or her sister in a similar circumstance would enlist her aid. And there would be a kind of caravanning from Oklahoma or Missouri to California. I lived for, I'd say, from about three to eight years old consistently in Southern California. My mother was married for a long period of time. And my brother, little brother, was born. My aunt came out with her kids. They would visit. So they developed kind of locations that were comfortable and familiar to both of them where they would rendezvous. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> it was a kind of uh, domestic circus. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you 
you mentioned on your website that you grew up in the Bible Belt, and I, I, I was intrigued by that, and I wanted to hear a little bit about why that's an important part of your identity. Well, there was a consciousness in school there, and with friends I would try to meet of a Protestant, conservative Protestant religion. Mm. And in fact, my mother would take us to Bible camp, right? Usually any form of Bible camp, mostly Methodist, as a form of babysitting, Mm -hmm. actually. So she could take off and do whatever she needed to do. And uh, I was very conscious, even at a young age, that I did not understand what was being talked about. Mm-hmm. And conservative religion, it used to be, and when I was a young child, there was still a sense of charity towards those who were in need. Mm-hmm. I think that's somewhat fallen by the wayside. I was conscious of that. And especially I was conscious of that and as it pertained to how our government also still worked. Because when I needed to ask to become a foster child at, at 15, 15 and a half, that those social services were paid for by taxes and firmly in place. And there wasn't that sense that being needy meant that you were a drain on society. Hmm. I've seen that change in a negative way. And also a sort of understanding that sort of mix of religion and religious beliefs, namely Christianity, tied to being an American. Mm. And I felt disenfranchised from that, too. My maternal grandmother was born on a Cherokee reservation in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. I never got a sense of any kind of Christian religion from my grandmother. Mm -hmm. In fact, I always understood more uh, a relationship to nature, to the world that we lived in physically. It was a a relief and a solace. And so when I would go to these vacation Bible schools and I would hear stories of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, I was confused. Mm -hmm. I would try to reconcile those kind of male personalities described to my home life and it made no sense to me. I remember once the basket was passed around and I was like maybe nine and I was holding up a dime I had been given to put in the basket. And I remember stopping and saying to the uh, Sunday school teacher, wait a minute, you talked about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Um, I want you to explain to me who they are, what they are, or I'm going to keep my dime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It, It was confusing to me. And I felt a sense of relief being in school whenever I was in Southern California because I didn't feel that. Mm. Because I went to school with kids who were from Japan and Hawaii and Mexico and whose families had different religions and they weren't all Christian. Right. And, or they did not uh, express or live by any particular religion at all. Mm-hmm. But there was kindness in their home. And that was compelling to me. Mm. So I started to really, in the midst of all my vagrancy and observation, begin to sort those things out. And as another way of seeing that who you were and how you behaved in the world was not really dependent upon uh, a religious conviction. Mm -hmm. Right. So in a way, it's like the Bible Belt helped you to understand who you were were but who you were not yes 
as traveling did. Like mm-hmm. I would see, you know, I did not belong in so many places. Mm-hmm. And that was clarifying. It was not always and isn't always a painful thing to, to recognize that you're not in the right place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You now live in Los Angeles. I do. And uh, you uh, lived in Southern California on and off for a long time. And this is a place to which people have always come to reinvent themselves. How did Los Angeles help you to become the person you are now or the person you wanted to be? I love Los Angeles. I moved to Los Angeles in the mid-80s to attend California Institute of the Arts in Valencia. Um, I had been living in Oklahoma, painting, and wanted to get a master's degree, so I applied and was accepted and came here, really wanting to expand my thinking about my work and about how I might make better work. After that school experience, I stayed in Los Angeles because I think I could not imagine going back to the Midwest. We mm-hmm. come back to the Bible Belt or a restricted kind of thinking about what was possible. I liked that the people I was meeting, the work I was able to do here was so expansive. Mm-hmm. And I stayed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Reinvention is a, is a very American concept. How do you see your own story in the continuing of stories of reinvention, of people becoming who they imagine that they could be? I think imagination is a transformative thing. And here's how it changed me. It started changing me the minute I started reading a lot as a kid. All that time in the backseat of the car, I spent taking care of my younger siblings and reading Mm -hmm. and staring out the window at the world as it flashed by, imagining myself in all those places Mm. and who I might be there. It was not just escapism and and a way to endure Mm-hmm. It was a way to picture and try to imagine a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those choices, and that I had choices, and some of those choices weren't in my current paradigm, surely, as an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old. But I knew that it was possible to do something different because I could imagine myself into those other worlds, mm-hmm. right? And travel helped with that. I think it still does. Imagining myself into other worlds, other situations, and even in terms of trying to understand and having a curiosity about people who were nothing like me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For me, those people were usually the most stable members of society. Mm. Those were the people that I had to understand and try to identify with more than any renegade. Yeah, right, right, because you had plenty of those around Because you. I was surrounded by, I was raised by a renegade. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember somebody in particular, a, or a type of person in particular, some sort of more stable member of society that you could, that you could understand in your imagination? The fallout from going to so many schools also meant that I didn't have friends. Mm-hmm. 
So the people that I was closest to were my siblings and my family members that I was in touch with. I didn't have friends, but I there were characters in the books that I read. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the, the first books that I completely identified with was Dickens' David Copperfield. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> right? And speaking of, of reinvention, he actually, the character actually talks about, and, and that book is, as Dickens says, closest to a biography that he ever did. Mm. Because he was sent to a poorhouse as a child. Right. And I remember the, the reading the narrator's uh, statement, wanting to know if he was would be in the end the author of his own life. Mm. Or... In, in essence, a victim of the circumstances he had found himself in. And I read that at 11 or 12 years old, and I thought to myself, yes, I'm going to be the author of my own life. I am not going to be a victim mm-hmm. of, these cir- of circumstance. Once I, ha- I felt that way and had a, a, cl- a clarifying understanding of that, then it was more I could recognize in people that they had that kind of understanding about themselves, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the first people I felt that way about was my junior high English teacher. Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, he ended up being the social worker who, because he left teaching and became a social worker, who helped me get into foster care. Oh, wow. So he he helped you with your reinvention. Yes, he helped me. He significantly helped me with my reinvention. In fact, he said to me at that time, I will go to bat for you as John Q. Citizen, and I will make sure that you get into a stable environment so you can finish school. Mm -hmm. Because that's what I wanted. Yeah. That was a wonderful turn of events for you. It was. And I and and so you know the reinvention continues in that I always wanted to be and have been open to helping people in that way myself. Right. You mentioned earlier that your mother's grandmother was born on a reservation. My mother's mother. Your mother's mother. Excuse yes. me. Your mother's mother was born on a reservation. Your grandmother. My maternal grandmother was born on a reservation. So I was just wondering a little bit about your Native American heritage and and what it means to you. You know, it's complicated. It's a very complicated bag that one because it was very uh, fractured and diluted. Mm-hmm. My, as most of my identity has been, my maternal grandmother turned her back on those roots. She uh, married a man who did not want to be associated with, quote, those Indians. Mm-hmm. So she even turned down land that was given to her because of being on the Dawes Rolls and a member of the Cherokee tribe. And she turned her back on that. But there were all the stories that came from her experience, her family. And my mother would sort of, was a very colorful person and would punctuate all the dramatic events of my childhood with these stories. Mm-hmm. Because we were descended, I mean, my grandmother's mother's name was Martha Sixkiller, and 
the whole six killers revenge and what you won't put up with and a sense of kind of like brave righteousness and fighting for what's yours it fueled my mother's defiance Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and her sort of being outside of the mainstream. And she would tell those stories. Like I I remember overhearing her have fights with boyfriends or husbands and lovers. And she would say, you don't mess with a six killer. Mm. I was the kid in the backseat of the car reading as we fled yet another domestic circumstance imagining who that person might be and how that story came to be so lodged in my mother's psyche. Mm-hmm. Right, it really was part of her identity. And a part of her identity, and and yet being very distant from it myself, I didn't have the same experience. And I realized I was such a witness to handed down what they could be calling now epigenetic trauma and suffering. Mm-hmm. And I see that now, how much I witnessed my mother's suffering Mm -hmm. and also my siblings and the suffering that she sort of inflicted on almost everyone that she came into into contact with. That's a form of heritage from uh, having ancestors who've been so dispossessed. Mm -hmm. The Cherokee baskets are called burden baskets. Mm carrying those on their back as they marched to a new place to live, which had nothing to do with where they lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm descended from that, and I don't know what to make of that because the, the I don't have a tribal relationship now. I didn't grow up with it. I didn't grow up with any sense of belonging or community. And yet, because of my own kind of vagrant life and being so dispossessed and my mother's hauntings, I feel very connected to that those stories and those traditions. Right. Your mother had her own burden basket that she carried she around. She had her own burden basket. She put us all in it. We were her burden. And she and she let us know that on a daily basis. Right. And what does the, the name Six Killer mean to you? The name Six Killer, well, what it literally means is like, you know, that, that uh, six arrows that have killed people that have come from, you know, your quiver. Mm. Uh, that's what it means. And, and, it, and it means that's the name on the Dawes roll that allowed me to become identify with my family of origin. Mm-hmm. I could trace that and identify that, as many people can. Many, many, many people are de- descended from the disenfranchised Native Americans of the American Southwest. The five civilized tribes were all rooted out and sent to Oklahoma so that the land could be used, very rich land. Right, right. And what is Dawes Rolls? The Dawes Rolls are, and I don't know all, I don't know that it, uh, off the top of my head I can say all the history of that, but once the land was going to be opened up to settlement, again by white settlers predominantly, roles were taken, uh, kind of a census Mm -hmm. of the Native Americans living in the land, which had been given to them, but was now going to be taken away. 
And so they could be compensated for oh, okay. the fact that that land was taken away from them. And so then those Dawes rolls are now used as a way to establish that you are of Native American descent because you can trace your family to the individuals who are on those rolls. That's right. sort of a simple way of saying yep. it. Okay, I understand now. I just, uh, I'm not really familiar with that uh, term. And most people aren't. Yeah. Yeah. So let's turn to talking about you as a a creative person, an artist. How did you start painting and learning about art? The writing began earliest, has always been the central kind of concrete create in the world creative endeavor. And it started, I know, around four or five years old. Mm Very much so. I would write, but I, I, I learned how to read very early. I don't even remember learning how to read. Mm-hmm. I remember writing with a pencil on lined paper and just being conscious of the fact that I was making valleys and hills. Mm. Valleys and hills. Valleys and hills over and over and over again. And that that was a story. Mm. And that was my story. And that I needed to tell that story. And I felt just sort of driven to do that. And that sort of externalizing experience and story with a pencil or paper or some sort of writing or drawing instrument Mm -hmm. continued in my childhood and has through my life. So really the 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 visual storytelling has been with drawing, Mm -hmm. you know, so I did that and wrote all the time. Uh, growing up, reading and writing in the backseat of the car. And then the painting really started when I was in foster care. And my foster father had a set of oil paints in a box with a little easel and all the little tubes and the brushes. And I was so sad and distraught happy to be out of the backseat of the car, but missing so much those siblings I had taken care of mm. and not really knowing how to console myself. And I started painting. Mm-hmm. And so then I, in school where I was in a stable school for a year and a half, at least I uh, started taking the art classes and drawing and painting and I was good at it. And so it was like the first time also with the drawing and the painting that I felt that I was actually communicating. I kept the writing to myself and didn't really share it with the world for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about you as a visual artist and your art and your creative process. How does the, the visual expression and the written expression, how do they kind of work together or complement each other? Well, I have written one novel that is a, a Kundal's Rumain, which is a coming of age of a visual artist who's uh, also a foster child. Mm-hmm. It's called Little Trespasser, and it actually has drawings in it. Mm-hmm. So that's a literal combination of the visual and the written, mm-hmm. right? In terms of how visual art influences the narrative that that I tell, my writing is very visual. Mm -hmm. What happens is that I actually see the story in my mind, Mm. and then I attempt to put that on the page. 
Right. And so uh, the dr- the drama of it, the 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 sensual reality of it, uh, it's a picture to me. It's it's a it's it's vividly there in my mind. Mm-hmm. I can see that story. So first I see the story, and then I tell the story, mm-hmm. and then I write the story. So myself as a visual artist and myself as a storyteller are completely intertwined. Mm-hmm. Whether it has, whether I'm drawing, painting, or writing, mm-hmm. they're all part of the same process. Yes, mm-hmm. maybe, for me they are. Maybe different parts of how you're expressing the story. Yes. I wanted to ask you about a phrase that comes up in in some of your work, which is uh, foster girl. And you've talked a little bit about uh, your foster family and becoming a foster girl. What does this phrase mean to you? And how do you talk about this theme in your work? To be fostered means that you're being taken care of by someone or an entity that's not in, inherently required to do that. It's a form of charity, mm-hmm. right? And so I was conscious of that as a foster child, very conscious of that. When my foster mother took me shopping for school clothes because I didn't have anything but the clothes on my back when I was delivered to them, it was fun to get the new clothes, and yet she, I heard her at every store ask for a receipt and triplicate. Mm. And I asked her, why did you ask for that? And she said, because I need one for my files, and I also need at least two to hand in to your caseworker so that I can be reimbursed. Mm-hmm. I never ask for a receipt when I buy, a, when I buy something for my family members because I am not going to be reimbursed. Right. I was very conscious of the fact that people were being paid to help me and to take care of me, Mm -hmm. that I was being fostered. Right. And I had great appreciation for that. And I also had a lot of suffering related to that. Mm -hmm. And so I want to tell that story and own the reality of that that being disenfranchised, what it comes with, and the sense of being taken care of, that one can't take those things for granted. I, I was very conscious that in saving myself from the way I grew up, I gave up security and I gave up a sense of belonging. Mm. And I also discovered the price that you pay for that. Mm-hmm. And so it's that's a part of my story. I think I believe that those feelings I know are a part of many other girls' stories, many other people's stories, and many other creative individuals' stories that they had to find a way to be fostered in this world because the people who were meant to take care of them we're not able Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's an I believe an important story to tell because we need to take care of one another Mm -hmm. yeah it's a such an interesting juxtaposition this sort of uh, very 
difficult life that you lived had a lot of sense of belonging and then you moved into a a, a safer life a life in which you could be successful be yourself grow up <laughs> be taken care of but it came with this sort of uh, a different sense of a new disenfranchisement almost yes it did and it's really true that I have a consciousness because now I'm 65 years old. I'm no longer 15. Yeah. And so I see the gift of that. And I also see the burden of that. Hmm. And I have a real consciousness that I've lived my life on the edge of every family structure. Mm-hmm. Right? I, uh, the family I was born in, I was adopted by my stepfather. Uh, my biological father gave me up for adoption. I became a foster child. I married and then I was divorced. Uh, I had a child of my own. I married again and became a stepmother. Mm-hmm. I actually got a tattoo on my shoulder of the first initial of each one of my last names. Mm. Smith, Embry, Edwards, Rice. And it's. I realize it's spelled... S-E-E-R, seer. It was amazing to me because I saw, once again, coming full circle to that girl in the back seat of the car looking through the window as the world, the desert, flew by, seeing where she was going, where she'd been, who she might want to be, and trying to imagine what she needed to do to get there. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel enormously grateful that I've made that journey. Yeah, yeah. How did you come to understand that dichotomy that we were just talking about with belongingness that you felt in your in your pretty fucked up family? <laughs> A curse word right when it needs to come into play. Thank you. <laughs> and an appropriate one. And then these, I don't know, lack of belonging almost uh, in this family that was more like the kind of family that you wished to have that you could flourish in. How did you come to understand that over time? You said, I'm not that 15-year-old girl anymore. And so I see it, I've seen it differently over time. How did that, that process kind of take place for you? Like, over over the years learning from a great many people that i've come into contact with uh, uh, a number of uh, philosophies and perspectives that i've adopted and explored that help me see that we all have suffering mm-hmm. and and especially the writing that i've done has helped me see that and also the love that actually has come into my life Mm -hmm. right with uh, I have a very loving partner who helped me and helps me every day to understand that no matter what your background is because he grew up in a yacht and I grew up in the backseat of a car that a sense of not belonging and having a different perspective than those around you is not gender-based, 
is not a socioeconomic mm-hmm. you know, situation. Who knows what it is finally, right? Mm. Because there were other kids in the backseat of that car with me, and only a few of us escaped. Mm-hmm. And who knows what that, why that is? I can't pretend to know. Mm. I think about it. I explore it. I wonder. I try to imagine. And that also has everything to do with the stories that I tell and my desire to tell stories. And I think also I'm content to live in ambivalence. Mm. I'm content to live with ambiguity. Right. I'm content to live not knowing and understanding so much that I will never know or understand. And so I don't believe in certainty mm-hmm. of any kind. That has allowed me to appreciate being on the outside and being able to give in those circumstances what I can give. Because a lot of times it means I'm the one that can see what, what is needed. Mm-hmm. When no one in that circumstance, the people who belong, don't always see. Right. Yeah, the outsider's perspective. The outsider's perspective is valuable. Right, right. I love that whole part about um, becoming comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty. It's really where we all live. We just kind of pretend like we don't. We block it out because to live to live on a daily basis and all we ever have is today, all of us, there's so much uncertainty in the world. It's overwhelming. But I try to take that in. I, I grew up with so much uncertainty. And so I came to a place, because it's difficult for a child to live with so much uncertainty. So I came to the place where I, I was searching for stability. Mm-hmm. I have that stability. I found it in myself, and I found it with trusted loved ones, and I've made a stable home life and world. But I'm still very conscious of all that... I can't really know or understand or change. Right, right. As we've talked about, you grew up with poverty, instability, neglect, and you're now living a more stable life. And I'm just wondering, who is the you that has persisted and endured during the voyage of your life? Hmm. Wow. The you, the me that has persisted. That's such a beautiful question. It sort of calls to the idea that there is an essential self. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I believe that. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of odd thing that I, in all the change I saw around me, And of course, we become individuals and strong individuals because we differentiate ourselves from our parents. And I've certainly gone through that process with my mother. I'm not my mother. Mm -hmm. And yet there are many ways that I am my mother. Mm -hmm. The renegade girl, the solitary girl, the the girl who runs when, when things get hard. And I can see myself there. But my essential self is someone who is that reader, watcher, in the backseat of the car, but who is still not so solitary 
that she doesn't reach into the ice chest and pull out the milk and fill the baby bottles and take her infant siblings into her arms and feed them in the middle of the night when she can't even see where she's going. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is me, essentially, and it always will be. Mm. I mean, that, that that I'm a creative person and an imaginative, solitary person There are those two sides of me who also is supremely nurturing. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's right. Yeah, that you could do that. Yeah. So we talked about your mother and that you're not your mother. And as with many people, (laughs) (laughs) your mother had a huge impact on your life. Yes, she did. (laughs) So I'm just wondering, you know, you, you talked about being comfortable with with not knowing but how have you understood your mother over the years and what your mother's legacy is in you wow i don't know that i completely understand my mother nor nor do i believe i ever will Mm -hmm. i don't even know if i want to understand her Mm. what i want to do is accept her Mm -hmm. for exactly who she was because I have learned that that's what love is. Mm. You know, I, I certainly couldn't change her as a kid. I didn't even have any consciousness of changing her. I was frightened of her mm-hmm. because she, she did suffer greatly. She did take her suffering out on me mm-hmm. uh, in the form of uh, a lot of uh, verbal and physical abuse. And so, uh, understanding my mother I I think as I've gotten older and I understand where that kind of suffering comes from more then I have more compassion for the difficulty of a very beautiful intelligent woman uh, growing up in the family and in the town and in the state and in the country and in the world that she did Mm. and what her options were and what she was not able to do for herself, the, the social constraints on her, and also physical ones. I think she had quite a few problems mm-hmm. that were ne- she was never helped with. So I feel compassion for that. I don't know that she ever knew how to take care of herself. Mm. So how could she take care of me? How could she take care of anybody? She counted on me to take care of her children. And in fact, she called me her strong right arm. And I did that as long as I could. Right. And I did that as long as I could. And so I have compassion for her today. And I have a lot of sadness for her. And it's given me a lot of insight into the lives of people around me. And in my own life, that sometimes we have choices and we don't even know we have them. Mm. I don't think she had many choices when she was growing up. And she probably, as they say, you know, it's a cliche now to say that we did the best that we could and that we should, for, that, that we should forgive. And so I think for a long time, I did cast my mother out of my heart. Mm-hmm. I felt as if I had to do that because... It's the way I could live myself to open my heart up to life. And now I know 
she lives in my heart again. Mm-hmm. Mm, right. You're strong enough to let I'm her in. I'm strong enough to let her live in there. Yeah. Yeah. So I just have a, a last question. You've lived a lot of life. <laughs> During the course of your journey, what have you learned about what it means to live well? Oh, to live well. That's interesting. Kind of like what people think about success, which is not tied to money at all, actually. You know what? To create a safe home for myself and my loved ones and my family, and to also ensure that uh, my community is a safe home, too, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it goes back to being a foster kid, being taken in, being able to go to the school to school and graduate and get to college and do all kinds of things because not only because of my own resilience and 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 asking for help but also because the community was able to do that so having being a part of a community that always reaches its hand out to help mm-hmm. uh, is an important thing to me Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Chris, for sharing your insights into how art and literature helped you to survive your difficult childhood and imagine that it was possible to author for yourself a brighter future. You can find Chris's work at chrisjrice.net If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real with Diane McDaniel wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know why you listened and what you like about the Real podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. Follow Real on Facebook at Real with Diane McDaniel and on Twitter at Real the Podcast reach us at realthepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel. Thanks for listening.